Well, we are continuing in our series through the New Testament book of Revelation. We've come today to the letter of the risen and glorified Jesus Christ to the angel of the church in Sardis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. You'll recall from chapter 1 of Revelation that uh, the now elderly apostle John was in exile on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea uh, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus it says, and, and he records in verses 10 to 11, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Last week we were in Thyatira. Uh, this week we're again hitting the road. We're traveling about 30 miles to the southeast. It doesn't look like that on the map, but it is southeast to arrive in Sardis. And as you can see, it's located due east of Smyrna, about 50 miles northeast from Ephesus. Uh, Sardis became an important center for trade in ancient times because it was situated at the intersection of five major roads. Uh, today in that area, there's a small city known as Sart. Interestingly, there is absolutely no mention of the city of Sardis anywhere else in all of the Bible, uh, besides here in Revelation chapters 1 and 3. The ancient citadel's location on an almost inaccessible Acropolis, 1,500 feet above the main roads, uh, made it easily defendable against attack, and we'll see more on that just a little bit later. In addition to that dramatic Acropolis, Sardis was famous for its temple to the goddess Artemis, which was every bit as large as the one in Ephesus, uh, although its construction was never fully completed. As a matter of fact, from the picture, it looks like they're still working on it. Uh, As with Ephesus, Sardis was a polytheistic city. Uh, The Pantheon included most of the usual suspects, including the emperor. Uh, Additionally, Sardis was host to a number of mystery cults, secret religious societies. Another prominent feature of the landscape around Sardis was its necropolis, which elicited the nickname for Sardis, the Cemetery on a Thousand Hills. Um, There are apparently hundreds of these burial mounds that, that dot the landscape all around Sardis, kind of like our Mima mounds, but on steroids. These things are or, or monstrous. One of the largest synagogues in the ancient world outside of Rome stood in Sardis. It served a, a large Jewish community there. And at some point, a Christian church was planted here, which uh, for a time thrived. Sardis was a beautiful city uh, with magnificent architecture. It's one of the most interesting and one of the best preserved archaeological sites in the ancient world. Uh, Sardis, as you might surmise, uh, was a very wealthy city. It was once the capital of the kingdom of Lydia, uh, which was ruled by the fabulously wealthy king Croesus. You remember that Lydia from Thyatira, uh, we talked about her last week, um, was the first convert in the city that Paul made in the city of Philippi. Uh, her name obviously derived from the name of the kingdom that ruled that area, Lydia. Croesus ruled Lydia. And alongside the coin bearing the the image of Croesus there uh, are some other coins 
that were stamped during the time of his reign. And some historians believe that these were among the first, if not the first, coins ever minted in the world. So coinage began in Sardis. And in that vein, there's this really interesting cultural connection, which you'll pick up on as soon as I begin describing it to you. Sardis was located along the Pactolus River. Upstream on the Pactolus was another kingdom, the kingdom of Phrygia, from which we get refrigerators, just just kidding. But but it was ruled at a time by a, a, another great king whose name you'll immediately recognize. His name was Midas. And he was, in fact, a real historical figure around whom a great deal of mythology developed and multiplied. According to the myth, Midas did a favor for Dionysus, the god of wine, of pleasure, of fertility, and in turn, Dionysus granted him one wish. Uh, Midas famously requested, as you'll recall, that anything he touched would turn to gold. Uh, His wish was granted. He began to redecorate his palace, turning all of his furnishings to gold. Everything turned to gold. But then the problems started. Uh, His food turned to gold when it touched his mouth, nearly choking him to death. Uh, His wine turned to molten gold as well, nearly killing him. But worst of all, to his horror, even his precious daughter, when he embraced her, became a golden statue. So in desperation, Midas returned to Dionysus and he just begged him to remove the gift that had become such a curse. And uh, Dionysus agreed. He, he directed King Midas to go down to the banks of the Pactolus and to wash away, as it were, the curse. And when he arrived at the river and dipped his hands in the water, he could see the gold flowing um, downriver from his hands in the direction of Sardis. Um, and when he went home, everything he now touched returned to normal, including his daughter, and they all lived happily ever after. But that story was told, that whole myth developed to explain one thing, or two things, why it was that the river Pactolus appeared so golden in color, and why so much gold was found in the river as well as in the soil of that region, and how Sardis became such, therefore, a such a wealthy city. And by the way, his repentance included relinquishing his crown and going into the muffler business, and, and now you know the rest of the story. So stand with me and let's read this text together, all six verses, Revelation 3, 1 through 6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, 
and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. You may be seated. Only six verses, and yet each of them is just jam-packed with significance and power. So let's begin by examining Jesus' self-description in the first part of verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. In chapter 1, verse 20, Jesus explained the symbolism of the stars. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And again, recall that the image of the seven stars almost assuredly represents the leadership in general, if not a pastor in particular, of each of the seven churches. The word angel in Greek is angelos, it, it means messenger. In, in Hebrew, malik, and in Greek, angelos, uh, both of those words translate angel, and both of them at the root mean messenger. So we pastors may not seem like stars to you, or, or even angels for that matter, but Jesus says we are, so deal with it. <laughs> Actually, I think if, if you know Pastor Evan, I, I think you'll agree that he's quite a bit much more angelic than I am. It's true. Seriously, though, notice what Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 1. He has the seven stars. He has the seven stars. They belong to him. They are his possession. They are under his authority. He's addressing this message first to the pastors or the elders. And the fact that they belong to Christ, on the one hand, gives greater authority to their leadership, and on the other, makes them all the more accountable to faithfully relay to the church the message Christ first gives to them. The same description of Christ as holding the seven stars in his right hand was given at the outset of the letter to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. And the realization here is that the pastors or the elders of the churches are ultimately responsible and responsive not to a human intermediary like a bishop or a pope, but rather to Christ himself directly. And each of us will give account directly to the Lord himself. There's a reason that the word says, let not many of you become teachers, my brothers, for as such you'll incur a stricter judgment. And it lends greater significance and power than does it not to to what the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 13, verse 17, when when he wrote, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those, notice, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
I know someone's going to ask me about the seven spirits of God if I don't clarify it again here. So notice, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. As Paul said to to the Ephesians in chapter 4 and verse 4, and as the rest of the Bible affirms, there is one Holy Spirit. So why the symbolism of seven spirits? We'll probably ask a similar question when we come to Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, where the one spirit is represented by seven burning lamps. And then in chapter 5, verse 6, where the one spirit is represented by seven all-seeing eyes. And students of God's word have always wrestled with this for 2,000 years. We've wrestled with this text. There are two interpretations that make sense to me against the backdrop of the whole of God's word. The first is this, that the number seven in biblical numerology represents fullness. It represents completion. And one of the indictments that Jesus brings against the church at Sardis is that he found their works to be incomplete. So they needed a fresh filling and a fresh empowering of the Holy Spirit to enable them to complete the work that Christ had given them to do. The Word of God and the earliest creeds of the Christian faith declare the Holy Spirit, the third person, uh, the uh, third person of the three in one Godhead, to be the Lord and giver of life. Jesus had pronounced this church dead. Only the breath of the Spirit could infuse them with new life and bring them back from death. A second interpretation focuses on Isaiah 11 where there's a promise that God would cause the Holy Spirit to to rest upon the promised Messiah who subsequently came in the person of Jesus Christ. This sevenfold description of the character of the Spirit of God is laid out in verse 2 where it says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of of the Lord. Seven, count them, seven attributes of the Holy Spirit resting in fullness on Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Notice again in Revelation 3, 1, that Jesus has the seven spirits. There's that verb again applied now to the spirit. That is, Jesus has the Holy Spirit. That is, God the Holy Spirit is submissive to God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus gives the Holy Spirit to whomever he chooses. In the latter part of verse 1, Jesus turns then to reproof. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Notice also with me that there's a distinct change in the way that Jesus speaks to the church at Sardis. In each of the previous letters that that we've examined, after identifying himself, he's begun with words of commendation. And for the church at Sardis and his leaders, its leaders, there is no commendation, but there is confrontation. There is rebuke. 
There's no indication that false doctrine was the problem at Sardis. There's, for example, no mention of a Balaam or a Jezebel or the Nicolaitans. That the church, this church, had acquired a name. Its reputation had evidently spread far and wide. It was well, would have been well regarded in the city of Sardis and certainly in all of Asia. Asia. The other six churches in the region probably recognized the church at Sardis for its vitality. And there are, there are, aren't there just, just some churches that you can't wait to attend. You think, man, someday I'm going to attend that church. Just to experience the teaching and the worship and the dynamic atmosphere of that church because it has gained a name, it's gained a reputation. And the church at Sardis, I think, must have been that kind of church. It was kind of an it church. But there was just one problem. It seemed to be alive, but it was actually dead. It had a name for vitality, but not the reality. They had acquired a reputation with human beings, but not with God. There, there's a warning here for every church, especially those who may be living on the glory of a, a day that has long since passed. Have you ever gone to the store, maybe the farmer's market, you probably have, bought a beautiful, mouth-watering piece of fruit only to take it home and slice it open and discover that it's rotten on the inside? That was the church at Sardis. Or think about a fresh-cut Christmas tree. That's coming up, isn't it? Sorry. That's beautifully decorated and and, and festive. And the reality for that tree is, is that from the moment it was cut down, From the moment it was removed from its life source, it began to die. And in a matter of just weeks, the reality of that tree's death will be visibly evident when it's as dry as firewood and posing a hazard to your home. And that too would describe the church at Sardis. Decorative on the outside, but disconnected and for that reason, dead on the inside. Jesus very easily could have described them in the same way he described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs that are beautiful on the outside, but inside full of dead people's bones. It's true of some churches today, isn't it? Amir Tsarfati asks the question, how, how do we know whether we are in a healthy church? His answer, look for signs of life. Is there love in the church for one another and for those outside? Are there factions, divisions in the church? How welcoming is the church to visitors? Don't just look for activities. A robot can carry out many of the same tasks as a human, even though there's no heart inside. When you walk into your church, is all that you see a beautiful building or a likable pastor or a well-rehearsed band? Or do you see Jesus in the warmth of the people around you, in the passion of the leaders on stage, in the commitment of the pastor to the word of God? And then he adds this, while you're examining your church for life, take time to inspect yourself. Is there evidence of Christ in you? James challenged the readers of his letter, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James 2.18 
Are you spending time in prayer and in the word? Are you using your spiritual gifts to bless the church, not out of obligation or guilt, but out of love? Are you sacrificially giving to support God's work? Is your faith evident in your life? Those are important questions. And this painful assessment of the church at, at Sardis, as Jesus looks beneath the reputation to the reality, is one that needs to be pondered by every church today, which often is full of activity, even though there's little that speaks of Christ and spiritual life and spiritual power. So having exposed their true condition, Jesus then provides them with instruction to reverse the fatal trajectory that they are on. In verses 2 to 3, Jesus lays down five imperatives, five directives, a a five-fold prescription, if you will, for recovery. Let's listen in as he gives gives it to them. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. You know, as I've thought about verse 2, I've realized I probably ought to print out verse 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. And just mount it on the ceiling above my bed. So that in the morning when I don't feel like going to the gym, when I should be going to the gym, there it is. Wake up, Jim. Strengthen what remains. It is about to die. (laughs) Before we, we dive into the five imperatives, notice with me what's at the center of this section. Jesus says to them, I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Now, the, the message of the gospel in the New Testament is that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We're not saved by our works, but we are saved for works. And that is among the purposes for which Christ has saved us, for the, among the purposes for which Christ saved you, is that there is work that he has for you to do. That he has uniquely designed you to accomplish, uniquely gifted you to accomplish, uniquely birthed you to accomplish. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers in the city of Ephesus, he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, notice, for good works, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And I love the way Eugene Peterson paraphrased this in the Message Bible. He put it this way, He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work that he does. The good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. Love that. Jesus then declares the, the works of the church in Sardis to be imperfect, unfulfilled, incomplete. Something or a list of somethings was missing from what God had shown them that he wanted them to do. I wonder if you've ever had a teacher or a professor a hand a paper or a project back to you with the word incomplete 
written across the top in, oh, let's say, red ink. Incomplete. Or, or maybe your grade for an entire course in college was declared incomplete. The, the requirements or the expectations were, were laid out clearly in a syllabus ahead of time, and, and your performance evaluated against that set of requirements was deemed by the teacher, the professor, to have fallen short of the goal. It's disappointing. It's embarrassing. In fact, the only thing that can be considered a positive in light of a grade of incomplete is that it wasn't technically a failing grade. It wasn't a final fatal failure. Still, you may only get a C at best if you do complete it. But by issuing an an incomplete, the teacher, the professor is indicating that an avenue remains for fulfillment of the requirements. You may be able to salvage your grade in a similar and, and yet more infinitely more consequential manner. Jesus issued a grade of incomplete to the church in Sardis. And so he issues five commands. The first one is, wake up. Wake up. See, I'm reminded of, of a doctor. You know, not a real doctor, but, but one who plays a doctor on television. You know what I'm talking about? Shaking a patient just before he or she loses consciousness. I don't know if that happens in hospitals. I think it's kind of scary, maybe injurious, you know? And that doctor is shaking the patient, saying, stay with me, stay with me. And in the same way, Jesus Christ, the, the great physician, is just took the church in Sardis in his arms and he shouts, wake up! Wake up! See, Jesus had already pronounced the church dead. <laughs> And so this call to wake up might run parallel to what he had said when he stood before the tomb of his deceased friend who had been dead for four days already and said, Lazarus, come out of there. See, only Jesus can call a dead person out of death into life. Only Jesus can cause a dead church to hear his voice and to come back to life. The second command is to strengthen what remains and is about to die. You know, within every dead church and every dead denomination for that matter, and there are several, there is often a a remnant of the living. What you might call the the church within the church. Uh, The somewhat healthy huddle (laughs) within the dead or dying church. Even though it may amount to nothing more than a flickering flame. But participating, think about this, participating in the environment of a dead church week after week can take a toll. I saw an interview this week with a woman, grew up in New Jersey, now lives in Israel, and she's working in the morgue where these mutilated bodies are coming in and and you could just see the toll that that was taking on her living in that environment of working in that environment of of only death in time even the warm bodies 
of that holy huddle within the dying church begin to cool to room temperature along with the majority. And I think what Jesus meant by strengthening what remains has to be a strengthening of this godly remnant, doing what is necessary to revitalize even those who are the most vital so that they don't themselves succumb to the weakening influence of the dead or dying congregation. Regarding this, the late John Stott wrote, Christ's will in this case is for the living remnant to strengthen what remains, perhaps by coming together and waiting upon God. A dynamic minority of awakened and responsible Christians is able by prayer and love and witness to both preserve a dying church from extinction and to fan its flame into fire. I'm going to go out on a limb here and uh, this morning I suggest that the next three directives of the five that Jesus issues are are the keys to the strengthening that he prescribes. Because the next directive is to remember what you have received and heard. Someone once said that the shortest road to repentance is remembrance. I like that. Jesus' diagnosis of the church at Ephesus, remember, was that they had abandoned their first love. And so he urged them to remember from where they had fallen. And here Jesus urges the remnant at Sardis to engage in two categories of remembrance. They were to remember, first of all, what they had received, and second, what they had heard. One of the keys to interpreting what Jesus is calling for here is is to understand that the verb remember is in the present tense. That means that that what he's calling for is not a one-and-done kind of remembering. Just kind of a looking back over your shoulder for a moment. Instead, he wants them to keep on bringing it to mind, rehearsing over and over again all that they had received and heard. It's that the present tense would be better translated, keep on remembering. And, and when you've done that, remember some more. Keep on remembering. Keep on calling it to mind. I've noticed that there's a a new buzz phrase uh, that seems to have gained popularity. I'm hearing it from a lot of newscasters because I watch a lot of news. But the phrase is top of mind. Have you heard that expression? Top of mind. And it refers to something that's always present in your consciousness because it's just that important. It's at the forefront of, of your awareness. And that's what Jesus is saying here, I think, that he wants them to keep what they've received and heard Top of mind. And as I thought about this, I I scribbled down just several things that as Christians we've heard. It's not a complete list, but, but here's what I scribbled down. We've heard the proclamation of the gospel. We've heard the teaching of God's word. If you hang around LifePoint enough, you're going to hear both of those things. Pretty much every Sunday, we, we've heard that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives that, that required the cross. We've heard that we need to believe in Jesus in order to experience that plan and purpose. We've heard that there are things that God expects of those who bear the name of Jesus. And then I wrote down some things that we've received. And again, it's an incomplete list, but here here was my short list. And we've received the love and the mercy and the grace of God through Jesus Christ. We've each received the love 
of at least one Christian who cared enough to share the message of the gospel with us. Bless them. We've received the illumination of the Holy Spirit enabling us to understand the gospel and God's word. We've received by the Spirit the quickening of our spirits to perceive our need for a Savior and so to believe in Jesus Christ. We've received the forgiveness of sin. We've received justification before God by personal faith in Jesus Christ. We've received the gift of eternal life. We've received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's that's what we mean when we talk about Jesus coming into our hearts. That the Spirit himself comes and takes up residence in our lives. We've received the gift of fellowship within the community of believers. And each of us has received spiritual gifts, divine enablements to serve everyone else within the community of believers. We've received the gift of a daily relationship with Jesus, the, the privilege of prayer. And, and, and the list just goes on and on. So how do we keep those things, all of that, top of mind? It's easier than, than, than you might think. For example, Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, communion, as, as a regular reminder. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. When you do this, remember me. We can keep these things top of mind by being present for the teaching of God's word each Sunday and in between Sundays. And you know, this, this amazing thing happens frequently. <laughs> and it's, I've just come to kind of expect it. I used to just be amazed at it, still amazed at it, but I, but I've come to expect it. And that is, someone will come to me after, after a Sunday morning sermon and they'll say, oh, pastor, I loved it when you said blah, 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 right? And, and I'll think to myself, I never said that. The Holy Spirit spoke it, but it was in the context of the teaching of God's word. We have life groups in which we're engaging God's word together, praying for each other, encouraging each other to remember and apply what the Holy Spirit is teaching us. We can meditate on God's word and by meditating, memorize it. The psalmist said that your word I have kept in my heart that I might not sin against God. You know, you and I have greater access <laughs> to more biblical teaching more spiritual encouragement across more platforms today than at any previous time in history. It's really mind-boggling. There's so much actually out there that it's hard to sort it all out. So there's no excuse for any of us to fail to remember and regularly call to mind all that we have received and heard. Next, Jesus says, keep what you have received and heard. Hold it fast. Here's the dirty little secret. It's, it is not enough, not enough to merely hear or read God's word. Not enough. Or even to study it. Unless it at the same time transforms us and we allow that to take place. You and I, as the as James said in his letter, have to be effective doers of God's word and not forgetful hearers. We have to be as committed to obedience 
that is, proactive, practical application, as we are, to discerning sound doctrine. In other words, it's super important to discern what is true, but it's equally important to, to, to let that change us and that we would live what is true. And here's something I just know from having lived a long time and made a lot of mistakes, and that is that when the Holy Spirit is tapping on your shoulder and saying, Jim, I want you to do this. I want you to serve that person. I want you to teach that class. I want you to serve that meal. I want you to help that person. When I resist, when I say, oh, I'll do that later. Oh, I'm good at that. I'll do that later. Or I don't really want to do that. I don't have time for that. Insert your excuse here. There's a deadening influence because there are things that God is calling us to be and there are things that God is calling us to do and when we resist him, we begin that process of spiritual atrophy. Finally, Jesus calls them and calls us to repent. You know, some of you have had a visit like I've had with or one or more visits with your doctor that that kind of changed your life. Because he or she gave you a simple, sober, serious assessment of your physical health that scared you into an urgent alteration of your lifestyle. Maybe your diet, your your priorities, your relationships, and more. And that's a great illustration of the kind of repentance Jesus is calling for here in the church at Sardis. He's calling for a decisive change of mind, decisive change of attitude and priority that would set them on the road to recovery, bring them back from the brink of spiritual disaster with immediate eternal implications. Notice that Jesus didn't beat around the bush. He he didn't hammer haw about their condition or try to smooth over the negatives of their past and present. Instead, the great physician just directly explained the seriousness of their spiritual condition and wrote them a clear prescription, no more playing around with spiritual things, no more talking about doing what's right. The time has come, just do it, start today. In the latter part of verse 3, Jesus turns from instruction to warning. Earlier in chapter 2, Jesus warned the church at Ephesus that if they didn't repent, he would come and remove their lampstand. That is, that they would cease to exist as a church. He warned the church at Pergamum that if they failed to repent, that he'd come and he'd make war against them. Remember that? With the sword of his mouth, sword of the Spirit. So now to the church at Sardis, he warns, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Notice that, against you. Sounds like judgment to me, right? And this wasn't a head-scratcher for the Sardians. I think that's what we should call them, Sardians. They can't call them Sardinia. Is that Sardinia is in Italy, right? You call them sardines, they'd be residents of the sea or of an aluminum can. Got to be Sardians. The Sardians would have understood the threat. They wouldn't miss its significance. You see, the, the main part of the city of Sardis lay in a valley. 
But at the Acropolis, at the top of that magnificent hill, was a citadel, a fortress that was nearly impregnable, so that if an attacker approached the city, the entire populace could move up the hill into the citadel and find shelter. They could survive there for months. But at two points in its history, the defenses of that city, which they thought were impenetrable, were in fact breached. In 549 BC, King Cyrus of Persia, an Iranian, came and laid siege. He and his army were there for weeks, and they were just about to give up and move on when one of one of his watchers happened to see a Sardian soldier leaning over the wall and losing his helmet. And the helmet fell a long ways. And the watcher just continued to observe what that soldier did. And he saw him disappear, but pretty soon he saw him coming down a winding pathway on the south side of that Acropolis. Retrieved his helmet, went back up the trail, through a secret door, back into the citadel. And Cyrus sent a squad of his special forces just to quietly follow that soldier back up that path and found the door and entered and took the city. Took them totally by surprise. When they thought they were safe and completely protected, they were not. Well, Cyrus and his forces destroyed the citadel, but it was rebuilt over time. And about 300 years later, in 214 BC, the Greek general Antiochus the Great came and he laid siege to the citadel again. And and one day they were observing the city and they noticed that vultures were hovering over one side of the fortress and they were just staying there. They weren't going back and forth. They were just staying right there on that side of the city. And so spies were sent to investigate and it was discovered that the Sardians who were under siege and had been under siege for some time were throwing their dead over that wall on that side of the city and so the spies found, as they went to investigate, that, that that side of the city was unprotected. And so at an opportune time, they, they went up and by that way and again took the city. See, so just when the Sardians thought they were safe, when they were, thought they were secure, disaster struck. So, so when Jesus said, if you'll not wake up, I will come like a thief and you'll not know at what hour I will come against you, their collective memories clicked in unison. If they refused to repent, Jesus was telling them he would pierce the hypocritical facade that that church was presenting and he would expose them to his hand of discipline. The church's lampstand could be removed. The life would be smothered. Its its light finally extinguished. Serious words designed to awaken the dead. There is, in fact, an element of commendation here. It's found in verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. 
You know, in the Bible, the the image of soiled garments was symbolic of, of moral and spiritual defilement. In Israel, tombs were whitewashed, not just to make them beautiful, but to make them visible, so that a religious Jew wouldn't accidentally brush up against one of them and, and thereby make himself ritually impure, ritually unclean. Even in the pagan temples of the ancient world, worshipers weren't permitted to, to approach their gods or goddesses wearing dirty clothes. For the Christian, this image of soiling is probably symbolic of a corruption of the, the purity of one's relationship with Christ by compromise with the pagan society, pagan values, pagan lifestyles, brushing up against things that, that interfere with our simple devotion to Jesus. And Jesus says that those who haven't soiled their garments will walk with him in white. So again, a question arises. Does this again point to a righteousness based on works? I don't know about you, but I, I find it kind of hard to keep all my garments completely unsoiled. How about you? Does it mean that if I've trusted in Christ, but I'm struggling with some sin in my life, that I'm in danger of judgment? I don't think so because of the first part of that, you've trusted in Christ. A few chapters up ahead in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, we'll meet some people of whom it is said that they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Notice that the irony in that image, the, the contrast. Robes washed in red blood are made white. Where did, how does that happen? See, but white robes represent the cleansing from sin that we receive when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the blood that was shed at the cross for our sin. When Jesus said, it is finished, paid in full. See, when we trust in Christ, our sins are washed away. So, so the image of walking in white is a promise of eternal, unblemished righteousness. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ. In the secular world, white garments were also an image of victory. For example, when, when the emperor or some other Roman military leader returned victoriously from war, it was common for him, along with his subordinate officers and others, to, to parade through the city clothed all in white. And so for the, for the Christian, walking in white with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords might also symbolize sharing in his victory over sin, over death, over the devil, Satan. And finally, in verse 5, Jesus returns to reward. Reward. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. For the one who conquers, who shares in the victory of Christ, Jesus makes three promises of reward. I don't want to just pause right here because, you know, when I was a, a young person growing up in the church, 
I'd hear people like me, you know, standing in front pastors, and they're talking about the victory that we have in Jesus. And, and I would sit there and think, I didn't describe me, man. I'm struggling like crazy with sin in my life. I just can't seem to get it right. What's this victory thing? But understand that the one who conquers shares is not the conqueror, but the one who shares in the victory of Christ. In 1 John 5, 4-5, the Apostle John said this, And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you enter into his victory. See, I understood as a young person, man, I'm a loser, not a victor. I'm struggling. I still struggle with all kinds of sin, all kinds of temptation, all the time. That's life in this world. But we sang this morning the words of Romans 8.37, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. We're not conquerors all by ourselves. We are conquerors through him who loved us. Loved us enough to die in our place, take the penalty of our sin, and add us to his family, add us to his kingdom. Paul wrote to the Colossians, we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son whom he loves. So the first promise here in verse 5 is that the conqueror will be clothed in white garments, which we've just thought about together, an image of having been cleansed of all our sin by the blood of Jesus and of sharing in Christ's victory. The second promise Jesus makes to the one who conquers is, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. This verse always causes Christians to raise again the question of of whether once having believed in Jesus and had one's name written down in the Lamb's book of life, their name can be blotted out again. In Luke 10, verse 20, Jesus told his disciples to rejoice because their names were written in heaven. And here again is a, a Greek verb in the perfect tense, which means it can be translated, your names, having been written in heaven, are on permanent record there. Permanent record there. What do you think? You think Jesus would ever contradict himself? I don't either. Salvation is by grace alone. If if it were otherwise, if our salvation depended on your sinless perseverance and mine, (laughs) no one's name would have been written there in the first place. Right? See, we're enrolled in heaven because of one thing, that we've been born again of the Spirit. We're in the process of being made like Christ, and along the way, like all children, we may be disobedient. What do you think? We may be resistant. You think so? We may be foolish. We may be wayward. 
But once born, we can never be unborn. Once adopted into the family of God, we can no longer be rejected. When I was young, we'd frequently sing a hymn in church titled, How Firm a Foundation. Some of you know that hymn. But one of the verses said that the soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, God speaking, I will never, no never, desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no never, no never forsake. And Christ's gracious promise to the Christian victor in Sardis is that he will not blot out his name from the book of life. The Greek sentence has a double negative for emphasis, as if Jesus meant, I will never by any means blot out his name. Third promise Jesus makes to the one in Sardis who conquers is, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels, which, which echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Boy, that's good news, isn't it? So in these six short but powerful verses of, of the letter to Sardis, Jesus says a whole bunch. There's a repeated use of the word onoma, which in the Greek, which can mean either name or reputation, name or reputation. In chapter 3, verse 1, the church in Sardis had a reputation or a name for being alive while in reality they were dead. In chapter 3, verse 4, Christ literally said, nevertheless, you have a few names in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. In chapter 3, verse 5, he promised that he would not remove their names from the book of life and that he would confess their names before God. In Jesus Christ, we possess, because we've received, eternal acceptance. We've received and we possess a name an eternal identity. Remember a week or so ago, we saw that image of, of Jesus promising to the, to the conqueror uh, a, a white stone on which was a name that only the receiver knew. A name that only Jesus and the, the receiver knew. Jesus knows your name. A day is coming when, when he'll stand with Believers who have been clothed in white by the grace of God, whose names are written with permanent ink in the book of life, and he will announce, this one's mine. His name is Mike. He's a son of the king. And and this one's mine as well. And her name is Blanca. And, And she's a daughter of the king. So Jesus concludes, This powerful five verses and now the tag. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen up. The call of Jesus to the church in Sardis, his call to us today as a church and as individuals is to finish the work that Christ has laid out for us to do, whether as a church or as individuals, to live lives that bear consistency with our claim to be followers 
of Jesus. Final thought. Christ holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. The seven stars, the the angels of the church, the pastoral leaders of the churches are in his right hand. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 20. So the, the seven spirits must be in his left. Imagine what happens when Jesus brings his hands together and the Holy Spirit gets a hold of those leaders and the Holy Spirit fills his church. He's willing. He's willing. He is entirely sufficient, more than adequate for all of the church's needs. When he came, he came to stay with us forever. Let's pray, shall we, that the, the Spirit of God, seriously pray, that the Spirit of God would continue to fill our lives, that the Spirit of God would continually continue to fill this church. And we would faithfully be and do all, all that he's called us to be and to do. Let's pray together. Lord, may we be people whom you can commend because we are about the things that you've called us to be about, that we are becoming the people you've called us to be. And may we be a church that doesn't have to stand in the place of condemnation or the place of confrontation because we've failed to do what you've called us to do. May we be all about it. May we not miss out on any of what you have in store for us. Lead us, help us to walk with you. And we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that continues to cleanse us from all of our sin. And we give thanks, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, our soon coming King. Amen.